Amen, amen. Let's find our way back to our seats. This is always one of the best times we get to greet one another, man. The buzz is, the buzz is buzzing. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. And just thank him for his grace. Father, Father, would you hear the, the prayers of your saints this morning? Would you grant us an audience, Lord God, this morning? An audience that we don't deserve, but we desire to speak with you, to commune with you. We're a group of people who recognize our need for you. We didn't need more sleep this morning. We needed more Jesus. We needed your presence to overshadow the circumstances that caused us to wane, to caused us to suffer this week. We need the promises of your divine love to sustain us through next week. Father, we, we praise your holy name for allowing us the opportunity to be here this morning, to sit under your truth, your word, and to learn what it says for our health and for our growth. Father, I pray that the people of God would have attentive ears to hear. I pray that the word of God would be as sharp as it needs to be and do all that it needs to do to change us so that we are not the same as we were coming in, that we will be leaving this place. That we would have grown in our knowledge of who you are, that we would have grown in our intimacy toward one another, that we would have grown in our appreciation for what you have done. that our heart of worship would be advanced, it would be lifted up more this morning. Lord, we, as Pastor Derek said, we aspirationally desire to give you all. And would that aspiration be actual? Would we give you all of us? The good, the bad, the ugly, would we place our crown at your feet? And by your grace, would you extend your hand towards us that we may have communion with you? Lord, remind us who you are today. And remind us whose you are. We thank you, Lord, and we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The reality is, is that all of us in this room have sinned against God. Remember what sin is. Sin is any thought, action, or deed that is contrary to God's law or God's character. And we are all guilty of sin. And God being a holy and just God is not okay leaving sin unpunished. God's wrath 
will come down upon not only sin, but those who have indulged in sin, those who are inundated in sin. You see, when God created mankind, there was no sin. There was bliss in the garden. But at some point in our history, in our human history, Adam disobeyed God and so didn't Eve. And sin became a regular occurrence in the lifestyle of humanity. It became not only a regular occurrence, it became desired. It became normative. We thought that temporary satisfactions would would appease us. And so we fall back, slip back into the trap of disobeying God like it's nothing. And we forget, because of the lust of our heart, we forget that God's holy wrath abides on sin and sinners, John 3.36. You've transgressed the holy God. And there's nothing you can do about it. You've transgressed a holy God. And there is nothing you can do about it. God's wrath is real. And there's nothing you can do about it. And that's scary. It's scary because... I'm used to being able to fix things myself. It's scary because I'm used to being able to figure out things by myself. But if we would be transparent and honest, but for one minute, we would confess that we are lost, we are scared, we are broken, we are searching for answers. The problem is we're searching for answers in all the wrong places. And we're finding none. We're just going in circles. And there's nothing you can do about it. This is good news. The good news isn't that God enabled you to do something about it. Nope. That's not the good news. The good news is that though you can do nothing about it, God has done something about it for those who would trust in his son. You see, God's wrath is hot against sin. And what Jesus did 2,000 years ago was he gave of himself. He, was, he, was live, he lived a perfect life, the life that we ought to have lived, the life that Adam was supposed to live. Jesus fulfilled that. And then he gives it freely. He just gives it to you. So that when God peers down at you, he doesn't see the red on your ledger because of your sinful life. He sees the perfection of Christ's life over yours. So that his wrath does not hit you, but it hits him instead. That's why Jesus was beaten and brutally marred. That's why his beard is ripped out of his chin. And that's why he was nailed with nine inch nails through his flesh to a to a to a beams of wood. And that's why he uttered those words, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then Jesus died upon the cross. 
and he imputed his righteous life to those who would trust in his son only in a saving way. So that those who have faith in Jesus' name are saved from God's wrath. Jesus took it for them, but the story doesn't end right there. Because your faith means nothing if Jesus remains dead. Because the wages of sin is death. Which means all who are infected, impacted by sin will die, both spiritually and physically. Separation from God, spiritually, and separation from this world, physically. So when Jesus took your sin, the sin of all who believed in his name, Jesus was killed. He died. He paid the wages of sin for you. That's why he said, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in all of history, the Son of God was alone. They laid him in a tomb. His mother and their friends cleaned his body. And they went about life confused and lost, just like some of you. Not knowing what to do, what to trust, what to believe. The Messiah, everything they put their trust in, has died. But on that third day, Jesus got up from the grave. What does that matter? You see, when Jesus rose from the, rose from the grave, he proved that his life, his sacrificial death for those who trust and believe was accepted by God the Father. And that the wrath of God would pass over you who have faith in Jesus, but it doesn't pass over those who don't. You see... You can choose not to believe. You can, you, can not act, you can not have faith in Christ, but you can't get over the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. When his body was no longer in the tomb, it was proved positive that what we believe is past fidelity, that it's true. You can put all of you into that. If you're scared this morning to put all of yourself into Christ, I beg you have no fear for you serve a resurrected Savior. But if you have not given your all to our Lord Jesus Christ, even if it's just aspirationally giving your all to our Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation for your soul, you will pay the price for your sins instead of Jesus paying the price for your sins. And God's wrath is sure. If we learn anything from history, if we learn anything from the Bible, then we know that God will accomplish his wrath. It comes. And when it comes, it comes with the heat. I don't know what you may have learned, but there's no middle ground for you when you die. There's no second chance beyond this life where you, you may not give your life to him now, but you die, you go to heaven, you obey. Come on, God, please. And he'll just be like, all right, shucks. Come on in. Nope. It's not how it works. We've been appointed to live once. And then comes judgment. For those who have had faith in Christ, it's a, a judgment of rewards and gratitude towards God. But for those who have not placed their faith in Christ, that kind of judgment is not for you. You will be told to depart from God, for he never knew you and you never knew him. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, God instituted a plan 
for your growth, a plan for your health. He instituted something called the church. And Jesus promised that the church would always prevail and the gates of hell would never prevail against it. That all God uses is a collective of believers together that have covenanted under one place in order to be a salt and a light to this world. And that no matter what Satan's tricks and schemes may be, he'll never be able to overcome the gathering of the elect. It's so simple. Why do we got to pour more sauce on it? We get together and be what God has called us to be. Torch lit Christians ignited by the spirit of God. Heralding a message of the gospel. That there's good news for you, person who is lost in your sin. That there's good news for you, person who did an atrocious act against another and you're hiding it in your closet with all the other skeletons. That there's good news for you. And as they come into the fold as believers in Christ, God has instituted and placed not only the people of God around them, but he's instituted elders, under shepherds to care for their soul. And if you have been in church for any amount of time, you know about the role of pastor. We've been talking about the role of pastor for the last two weeks. And we've been talking about what a pastor does. What's the role of the pastor? What do they do? And there's two chief things amongst the myriad of smaller things. And that's to pray for your soul that your faith may not fail. And to give you a steady diet of the word of God that your faith may be cultivated to growth. But if you're like me, you grew up without many close examples of how to do this Christian thing. See, the culture of discipleship is gone now. Life on life is over. We're too busy for one another. Hey, man, can you, can you want to hang out? I don't know, man. My show is about to come on. That's a real answer I got years ago. You know, discipleship happens in community just as much as it happens one-on-one. -on -one. And it happens incidentally just by being a Christian amongst other Christians. You don't got to be super advanced. You don't got to be ninja Christian in order to disciple people. Just be an honest, faithful believer with the word of God before y'all. Y'all sit down, y'all read together. You're sharpening iron is our sharpening iron. Discipleship is occurring. And what God has done is, is for those who haven't had a, a view of what this faith walk looks like he's placed within the local gathering of torchlit holy spirit christians elders who mimic christ and who like paul can say follow us as we follow him we try to give you something tangible and visible to emulate and if we're going to emulate an elder an elder must emulate jesus to the best of their ability and so God put in place something called qualifications, that if you're going to be an elder, you must look like something specific, not generic. Oh, I want to look like Jesus. No, he put some teeth on what that should look like. And this morning we get to hear and see what does it look like for an elder to be qualified as such. And the reason why this is important is because God has instituted elders for your protection and care. And if you don't know that, now you know that. And if God has instituted it, then we need to know that and study that. So you can turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. 
chapter 3. And then have your cross-reference sheet out because we're going to read a, a, a passage from Titus right after we read the passage from 1 Timothy. As you're turning there, we, we generally think, when we think of the, the, the concept of leader, we generally think of somebody who's the most something. Right? When you think of a leader, a leader is the most something. He's either the most intelligent, he's the most connected, she's the most wealthy, they're cutthroat and pit bull, they get things done, the most creative. That's why we, we hail people like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk as leaders. We say that they're leaders because they're innovative. We say that, that, that uh, Jeff Bezos is a leader because he takes advantage of situations. Become, he's innovative. He changes the game. And so we elevate them as leaders. People who are gifted orators, right? They have the gift of sway. All of a sudden, we put the stamp of leader on them. Y'all, and, and I don't know your politics, okay? But take it out for a second. First time y'all heard Barack. Y'all was like, that brother know how to move some people, though. You got to give him that. If you, I don't care what you think politically, the brother can speak. Okay, the brother can speak and he'll move you even if you hate his guts. He'll motivate you to do something. Right, and all of a sudden, oh, leader. We stomp that, that, that leader tag on people because they have certain skills and gift sets. We think about a person's capabilities more than we think of a person's character when we think of the concept of a leader. But that's not true in the economy of God. That's not true in the economy of God. Most of the people we deem as leaders are woefully deficient morally. In the economy of God, the concept is leader, of leader is, has less to do with people who are innovative, less to do with people who can create wealth, less to do with natural raw intelligence, less to do with your oratory skills. When God calls lead servants to his local church, he's firstly looking for holy men. That's his first criteria. Is the man holy? Don't get it twisted. Mental faculties matters for a pastor elder. He can't be an a, a, a intellectual imbecile. But that's not the first thing God is looking for. God can do much work with a learned, educated man, but a holy minister in the hand of God is a dynamic, robust force for the kingdom of God. Guys, you guys have televisions. You're not blind to radio and news headlines. How many educated pastors have fallen and disqualified themselves from the ministry? Two PhDs, three PhDs, the smartest dude in the room, innovative, was able to build their church and grow it to six billion people disqualified from the ministry because something happened. They took their eye off of holiness. A man who would otherwise be deemed to have all the qualities of a leader is wholly disqualified from the office of pastor, elder, and bishop in the household of God if he is not a man striving for holiness. Having looked at some of the roles of an elder, we're going to look at some of what God says an elder needs to be made of. Not what the world says an elder needs to be. Listen, don't let your local news station tell you what a pastor is supposed to do and be. It's, they're wrong. I don't care who's on the news. Wrong. 
Don't let Harvard Business Review tell you what a pastor, a church planter needs to be or look like. No. Don't let your culture or your neighborhood tell you what a pastor ought to be and look like. No. We want the word of God to tell us what a pastor, elder, bishop ought to look like. This is the final authority, not them. What does it say? First Timothy chapter three, verses one through seven. It's in your Bible and you also have it in your cross reference sheet. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church? He must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into, the disgra into disgrace and the devil's trap. Look with me at a parallel passage. Maybe it's in your cross-reference sheet if you need it. The second thing there, the passage in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. If you want to turn there, it's just past 2 Timothy is the book of Titus. Paul is writing to Titus and he says this. He says, the reason I left you in Crete was so that you might write what was left undone. As I directed you, appoint elders in every town. Stop there. Notice what Paul's instruction to Titus is. To appoint multiple elders, plural, in every single town. Every church is to be led by elders. He said that that was undone. It was left undone. There was a body of believers without an under-shepherd to love them, care for them, protect them, and guide them. And so Paul tells Timothy, go there and appoint men, holy men, who can lead God's people there. And then he tells you what they have to look like. Here, Titus, you don't know what they look like? Let me give you a, an, a summary. Verse 6. He says, an elder must be blameless. The husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. An overseer of God's household must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able to both encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. Now, before we look over these characteristics in a summary way, before we look those over, I want you to notice that the majority of these qualifications are character based, right? They're moral qualifications. They're qualifications, testaments of a man's holiness. Why? Because a grimy pastor gives the church a black eye. 
right? Shiesty pastors give the world a reason to not trust in the transformative work of the gospel. And God doesn't deal with shiesty pastors. God calls justified, sanctified men to serve the church by leading the church. This doesn't mean that a pastor can be holy and intellectually incompetent. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says that he has to hold to a faithful message as taught so that he'll be able to both encourage with something. Encourage with what? Sound teaching. Sound teaching takes preparation. And he has to be able to do what? Refute those who contradict sound teaching. Which means the man of God has to be studied and learned in the word of God so that he can teach the word of God soundly and refute those who contradict the word of God. He can't be an imbecile. 2 Timothy 2.15, if you've been in church, you've heard it a different way, but it is what the CSB says. It says to be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. We know in, the, in, in some of the, the older versions, it says study to show thyself approved, right? Study, train your mental faculties, be all in here, but know that that is secondary to the character of a man. And that God will use the character of a Christian way before he uses the apologetic intellectual arguments of a Christian. Your greatest sermon and your greatest apologetic is your life. Did you know that? All of you are preaching. You're all preaching right now. Every day when you go to work, you're preaching a message without words. Now, I don't ascribe to preach the gospel at all times when necessary use words. Don't, don't believe that. That's baloney. But you are communicating with your life. And they believe nothing you say if your life doesn't match your words. Your walk gives credibility to your talk. And your talk gives, uh, your, your talk, no, your walk gives credibility to your talk. And your talk gives clarity to your walk. As we look at these characteristics, remember this, that a pastor will never embody all of these characteristics 100% of the time. The fulfillment of these, these, these characteristics, I mean, Jesus is really like, he's blameless. Okay, he's blameless in the truest sense of being blameless. Remember that your pastors are sheep just like you. They stumble like you. They struggle like you. They need prayer like you. But when you look at this list of qualifications, you should be able to look at your elders and say that this list speaks of him. He belongs here. An imperfect man, but he, he embodies this passage. So with that, let's look at 1 Timothy 3 in summary. Because it would be several more weeks of, of this if we didn't. Verse 1. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. We're going to stop right there. The word aspire. If somebody is going to be a pastor, and a bishop, a pastor, a bishop, or an elder, he must aspire to the call of God. He has to want to be. You cannot manipulate a man into becoming a pastor. Those are the pastors that tend to quit early, get burned out, or fall because of particular sins in their life. You cannot manipulate a man to be a shepherd. God puts something innately within you. If you're going to qualify as an elder, you have to have a deep and abiding desire for the, uh, to serve the people of God in that capacity. You know, if, if you don't have that desire, you ever, have a, you ever been swayed to do something you didn't really want to do? 
and then the person who swayed you left? Did you keep doing it? Nah. <laughs> Not at all, right? You don't endure doing hard things if you didn't want to do the hard thing that you started in the first place. That's why your boy can't lose no weight. Because I kind of want to, but I kind of like cake. And so I, I, I kind of want to do it, but it, the kind is not enough. I need to wholeheartedly desire something in order to endure the process of attaining and working in that thing. I have to be convinced that I need a lifestyle change if I'm going to change my lifestyle. And it's the same thing with those who aspire to the position of elder. You have to want to. And it can't be a kind of want to. It has to be, oh, I, I have to. I have to. I cannot not. The last thing the church of God needs is fickle, undedicated shepherds. It's the last thing you need. And God didn't call any fickle, undedicated shepherds to you. They may have called themselves, but they didn't, God didn't call them to you. That's why one's academic achievements don't qualify him as an elder. God is not calling men to the task of shepherding uh, based on their, the letters behind their name. Rather, God is qualifying the men he calls by engineering them with the innate characteristics of a shepherd for the protection and care of their sheep. God is qualifying men. The men that he calls, to, he's engineering them with innate characteristics of a shepherd for the protection and care of his church. A pastor has to be wired to, desire, to, wired to be a shepherd. A shepherd. Now, that doesn't mean their assignment as a local pastor endures for all time. No, but the heart of a shepherd never fades, never goes away. It's there and it's ever present. Now, let's be clear. Not all shepherds are going to look the same. They're not going to act the same. They're not going to excel at the same things. God's church is a beautiful mosaic of colors. His pastors have different cultures, different skills, different personalities, but they all have an internal enduring aspiration to shepherd God's people. It's just there. And there's no room for fickleness in the shepherd. Firstly, he must aspire to the office of elder. Secondly, let's look at verse two, but let's read verse two and understand it's a summary statement, right? An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. We know it's a summary statement because this, this parallel passage in Titus has bookends to it. And the bookends is that the elder must be blameless. And then he lists some stuff and then he says the, the elder must be blameless. And that's a parallel to an elder must be above reproach. He's going to give you a summary of what it means to be above reproach. What does it look like? Understand this. Paul's not giving us an exhaustive list because that would be very long. He's going to give us a summary, characteristics, types, so that we understand what it looks like for a man to be blameless, to be above reproach. He's giving us guidelines. The first is this. He has to be the husband of one wife. The elder must be, let me say it another way, a one woman man. This is firstly highlighting, it's highlighting two things. It's firstly highlighting that a pastor must be faithful. He has to be a faithful man. Prior to becoming a Christian, a pastor could have a whole lot of things going on in his past. A whole lot of infidelity. However, after giving their life to Christ and growing in grace, a pastor ought not have any side chicks, any mistresses, no flings. No should any other Christian. 
You know, you've heard of this passage that says, whatever, whatever ought to be true of a Christian, uh, no, whatever, yeah, whatever ought to be true of a Christian must be true of an elder, right? So you can take this list and just lay it up against yourself. Y'all ain't better not have no side chicks or side dudes. Straight up. Can't nobody have them, okay? Be faithful to your own. And that includes adult content. Adult content is a digital mistress. It's the same thing. You ought not have any. And let me say this, men and women, if you're struggling with that, can you please open your mouth and share it with the saints and the elders that we may pray for you and hopefully God will set you loose from the bondage of that thing? That thing is bondage. It's shackles. People who hate it can't stop it. You're not going to be shamed. Jesus took shame on the cross. You're going to be shamed. You're going to be loved and prayed for. You're going to be held accountable. Because I'm going to ask the members if they're holding you accountable as I hold you accountable. We're going to do this thing together. Don't hide this stuff no more. Please, you will die in that thing. It'll kill you. It'll kill your relationship with your spouse. Because the digital fantasy, your spouse can never live up to that. So I just want y'all to know, come on out with it. A pastor, if he's married, must be faithful to his marriage covenant. But the verse is also saying a second thing. It's saying that the pastor must be a man. This is what the scriptures teach. Look again at verses 4 and 5 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with dignity. Let's stop there. Paul is using the same creation order argument that he uses in Ephesians chapter 5, where he says that uh, wives are to submit to their husbands and husbands are to serve their wives by leading and giving of themselves for the embetterment and growth of their wife. He's using the same creation order argumentation here, and he does it again in the book of Corinthians. He says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, which he's speaking of the man managing his home, how will he take care of God's church? You may say, Pastor Canaan, where's the creation order ethic? It's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 in your cross-reference sheet. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Amen. It is not. Because we, we, we jack everything up. God said, I will make a helper corresponding to him. God created man to tend to the garden, and then he created woman to help the man. Let me be clear, this has nothing to do with fairness. This has nothing to do with abilities. This has nothing to do with worth. This has nothing to do with desires. Nothing to do with that. Men and women have roles, just like everybody else has roles. You know what's funny? We look at God, and what do you see? roles. You see God the Father orchestrating a master plan of salvation. You see the Son of God submitting to the Father, though he's 100% as a, he's 100% divine. He is God, yet he submits to the plan of the Father and gives of himself, and then they send the Spirit of God, who don't get no shine nowhere. He's the floodlight ministry, where he's lifting up the name of Christ to indwell the Christian to proclaim the message. They all just play in their position. 
co-equal, co-eternal, co-omnipotent, co-whatever, but they got roles to play. Your job doesn't even work with roles. Y'all know y'all sitting here because we're playing roles? You think we came up in here all willy-nilly and started setting stuff up and it just fell like this? Somebody got to set this up. Somebody got to set the tech. Somebody got to set the tables back there. Somebody got to deposit the giving. If you want to give, it's in the back. <laughs> we just play in our position. No one's more important than anybody else. No tech, no mics. No mics, no hearing. And God has done the same thing with his church. We all have a role to play in proportion with the gifts he's given us. And he's given us instructions on how to do that. And we best, we are best utilized if we just follow what he says. You ever, you ever get that Ikea dress that you try to put it together without the instructions? And then you got to take it apart? But that particle board isn't fun when you got to unscrew something and screw it back, then it's all loose. Now it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Yeah, let's not do that. Let's just follow what the word says the first time. Right? Humble ourselves and know that we're just doing whatever he says. The elder must be a faithful one woman man. Third thing. And I, I kind of bundled these ones together. Midway through verse 2. Says the elder must be self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Verse three: not excess, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but greedy. I mean, sorry, not quarrelsome, not greedy. That's the second week in a row I had one of those. Whew. Don't y'all leave online? Don't y'all leave? Let's put it simple here, because all of those things really speak to some to, to one big picture. The pastor should not be one who flies off the handle, nor should he be one that the sheep feel uncomfortable around. He ought to be a hospitable, there ought to be a hospitable, gentle disposition about your shepherds. Yet in their gentleness, the sheep ought to sense strength, protection, and weight. That's where that word, that, when I say weight, that's where that word respectable comes in in that passage. See, in the old days, they used to say a pastor has to have something called gravitas. Gravitas is Latin for gravity. Okay, gravitas is something that you, it just has to be built in you. There was an article, I was looking for a way to say it, and there was an article in Christianity Today where a guy kind of gives his take on what gravitas is. It's just the, it's where we get the English word gravity, right? Weight to him. This is what he says. I thought it was good. Gravitas is the condition of the soul that has, developed, uh, that has developed enough spiritual mass to attract other souls. It makes the soul appeal, appear old, but gravitas has nothing to do with age. It has everything to do with the scars that have been healed well, failures that have been redeemed, sins that have been forgiven, and thorns that have settled into the flesh. Gravitas means that the soul has expanded until it is so large that the body that contains it is that the body is so is, is larger than the body that contains it. Large enough to hold the truth of God's word. And like gravity, it pulls others not to the pastor, but to the holy work that has occurred within the pastor's soul. 
This gravity isn't a commodity, commodity that can be purchased with a seminary tuition payment. It certainly isn't found in a library. A weighty soul has to be developed the hard way. You guys ever meet somebody? When you meet them, you're like, yo, that, they got weight to them. And they're not even trying. They're just being people. But you sense a, 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 a profound sense of like spiritual weightiness to them. When they pray, it's like, ooh, shh, shh, everybody listen. Right? You, you ever been around those? That's gravitas. That's developed over time. That's developed with scars. That's developed with, with being wrong and having to be embarrassed and having to, to eat words. That, that doesn't just happen. That humility, that weight comes over time. You can't rush that. Elders have to build that. People have to build that. And that's why I have an issue with overly goofy elders. I'm cool when an elder likes to have fun. Y'all know me. I love to have fun. But an overly goofy minister is not able to identify with the scars of the people. Because y'all can't be goofy all the, all the time, can you? An underweight minister is not able to wield the authority necessary to move the sheep to where God wants them. Because don't nobody take that joker serious. Pastor must be self-controlled, sensible, hospitable. All these mean things, but... You guys know what these words basically mean. Self-controlled, sensible, hospitable, and weighty. The next thing it says, number four, it says that he must be able to teach. We went over that a little bit the last couple weeks, but I just want to give a little nuance here. The pastor has to be able to lay the word bare on the soul of his people. And as I quoted before, he can't be a holy imbecile, right? Of course, God is firstly looking for the holy character of a man, but he's also calling a man to be learned and skilled in the word of God. He has to study to show himself approved, right? A pastor still has to have a theological sweet tooth. Right? He has to, every time he hears the, the word of God taught or, or expounded on, he's like, mm, 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 hold up, let me hear that, say that again. Ooh, it's just a thing. I don't know why it's there. It's there. Y'all start talking doctrine. I'll be like, huh? Huh, what'd you say? Yeah, ooh, that's good, that's good. Let me write that down, that's good. I don't know what it is, but, but elders, pastors love the word of God. We have a desire for it, and we have to have a robust, intimate relationship with the word of God, as well as with Jesus and our people, so that we're able to take the word of Jesus and apply it to the people and feed the people and lead them to maturity in Jesus. But there's a nuance here when it comes to able to teach. It's okay, baby. There's a nuance here when it says able to teach. Able to teach does not mean able to preach. It's not what it means. I ain't gonna lie to y'all. Standing up here in front of people, be scary. And not everybody got the thing, the gift to do that, but that's not the qualification. Preaching is a subset of teaching. That's why they call the position a pastor teacher. Pastor teachers teach the word of God in various methods and ways. They preach the word of God. They teach in small group. They have a classroom teaching. They conversationally teach. They counsel teach. They preach teach. An elder doesn't have to be a bang out preacher. Every time he gets up there, he just lights y'all on fire. No, an elder will teach your soul the word of God in multiple different ways. But he has to be able to communicate the word of God clearly to you. That you may grow as a result of it. That's evidence of an elder, or at least the gift of teaching, which an elder has to have. He must be competent in communicating the truth of the scriptures to his people. He has to be able to teach. Number five, an elder must not be greedy. 
Okay, an elder must not be greedy. Let me tell y'all, y'all best not be greedy either. Like I said, these joints crossbreed. Hey, it's on you, it's on me, it's on all of everybody. We must not be greedy. Now, when I say the word greedy, what are y'all thinking about? Cash money, right? An elder must not be greedy for cash money. Yes, that is true. There are pastors whose main concern is to bring in enough money to satisfy their lifestyle. Whose main concern is to get your money from your bank account to their bank account quick. And those pastors will have to give an account for their sinful motivations. All of them will. But the word greedy is deeper than that. You're right for thinking about wealth. But a pastor shouldn't be greedy for notoriety or recognition either. You are not a shepherd. We are not shepherds so that we can be on, you know, Larry King Live. We're not shepherds so that you can say, look what Pastor Eric, Derek, and Canaan did. Nah, we don't want the notoriety. We don't want the praise. We're trying to reflect it someplace. Why not? Because our heads are prone to puff. And we get greedy for the praise. We get greedy for the credit. We need to heed the principle of Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It's in your cross-reference sheet. I'm going to speak this over myself and the elders. In you, it says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with the Father in heaven. Yo, son. That just hit. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your father in heaven. Because you already got your reward in the praise of men. It's cheap. You got your plastic trophy. So whenever you give, verse 2, so whenever you give to the poor, don't sound the trumpet before you. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets to be applauded by the people. That means your social media pages. Every time you do a good deed, do a good deed. Go home and praise God that a good deed was done. For truly, I tell you, you got your reward. You got your likes. Verse three, but when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right is doing. Symbolism, right? Keep it tight. So that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Guys, I confess I'm a prideful man. And I be wanting the credit. And oftentimes when it comes to Pillar Church putting out information on on Instagram and and social media, I, I overdo. Don't say that. Don't say anything about it. I overdo it because I know my propensity is to want the credit. And I, and I confess, I don't even know what a balance is, y'all. Like, I've been trying to find it because I want enough to motivate the saints that gospel work is being done, but not so much that it's like, yo, look how Pillar Church is killing it. I don't know what a balance is. I, t- I kid you, I, I need help. But, but the idea there, what, what I want to do is to be careful that we're not getting the reward of the cheap praise of men. I want our reward to come from the Father who says, well done, look, good job. You served faithfully. Many were blessed because of the result of your fruitful labor. A pastor should never be greedy for the praise of his people or anybody else. 
For then he's liable to tickle ears in hopes of maintaining their approval. And there's no such thing as a good leader who is approval-based. Because an approval-based leader will never ruffle your feathers because all he wants is your amen. And if I don't ruffle your feathers, you will never grow in grace. Think about it. It's the same thing physically. You don't grow, you don't grow muscles with no friction with no pain, with no turmoil. That mug is laborious and it's time after time, again and again, and it burns and the lactic acid builds, but it's all for the health of the muscle. So your elders are gonna push you on some things. Your elders are gonna challenge you on some of your worldviews. Your elders are gonna try their best to hold you before the word of God and lay you right across that mug. We're going to do our best to do that as we lay each other across it. We're going to do our best to not tickle your ears and leave you comfortably breathing to death. A pastor must not be greedy for wealth, recognition, or the praise of men. Number six, also verse six. He must not be a new convert. Remember, we talked about gravitas, right? That comes over time. He must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. What does that mean? An elder should have a little bit of a semblance of a spiritual OG. Let me give you an example. In 2005 is when the Lord saved me. And within the first couple uh, weeks of being a Christian, I was put up on stage to preach. And when I preached my very first sermon, it was the, uh, uh, was the, um, the Great Commission. And I know mo- a lot of preachers, that's their first one, right? Because, you know, go, go, preach. and just be all motivational, right? So I-, I preached that sermon and people came up to me and was like, yo, it went from here to here. Yo, it was like, yo, it was crazy. And I was like, where are you? And all of a sudden I started thinking I was, I was you know what I mean? You know what I mean? I started thinking I'm that dude. I started getting puffed up. Yo, those who know me know. Y'all was there. They started calling me the Gestapo. Me, me and my, my squad. You know what the Gestapo is? Hitler's military police? Because if you came and confessed sin to me, I was all down your throat. What you mean? Yo, Christians don't do that. Yo, stop it. And they were like, oh, my bad. That's that conceited new convert. See, she's saying, mm-hmm, she was there. She saw that. <laughs> oh, yeah, she's seen it. They become conceited. Uh, ultimately, they become puffed up with pride and it's funny that it says they'll incur the same condemnation as the devil because we get this unholy pride just like he did and thought that he could be like the most high Uh, an elder has to have some life to him spiritual life some years of endurance doesn't mean he has to be old it means he has to have uh, uh, years in the faith he has to have years of experiencing betrayal experiencing the joys of conversion of people he speaks to experiencing people who have passed away and we don't know if they knew Christ in that turmoil because we were the last one they spoke to like we got we got to feel that and have years of that building in us and guess what the, the, the more seasoned the elder the more you hear the seasoning in the way they speak the way they counsel you the way they speak to you how gentle yet firm how soft yet strong. An elder cannot be a new convert. I suggest to men, you sit down for over seven to 10 years before you 
aspire to, before you act on any aspiration to be an elder, just to live some of that faith. And then number seven says, furthermore, it says, furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into the disgrace, into disgrace, into the devil's trap. An elder must be an honest man. Okay, that, that's what we can deduce from that, that passage. He has to be an honest man. One who the world cannot level a charge of moral fraudulence against. Because you know what's funny? A lot of pastors, what they do is when they're among Christians, they're pastors so. But when they're someplace where nobody knows them, they're somebody else. And then when those worlds collide, which they will, outsiders can have nothing to say. But yo, you're right. I can see that. That dude be holding in a mug. Pastor can't be known for dealing under the table. Can't be guilty of wilding in the streets. If he is, he's not qualified to be an elder. God put these qualifications in place to ensure that those who are serving by leading are worthy of the call of an elder and worthy of the call of the gospel. And there should be no contradiction between the, the testimony of the people in the church and the testimony of the people in the streets. Same dude. Same dude. Yeah, we disagree. Same dude. Honest. Integrity. God wants his people to walk in holy proximity to him. And what he has done is he put elders to mirror his son Jesus so that they can say, like Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Here's what's hard. Sin, the devil, and the flesh are in constant opposition to Christians getting close to Jesus. But God has qualified a grouping of men to serve by leading, and this is what they do for you. They pray for the saints under their care. They counsel the saints under their care. They teach the saints under their care. They protect the saints under their care. They guide the saints under their care. They bind the wounds of the saints under their care. They equip the saints under their care. They cultivate the saints under their care. They visit the sick and the dying amongst those under their care. They visit and celebrate the new life of the saints under their care. They engage in spiritual warfare for the saints under their care. You know, it's crazy. A pastor is always the target of some kind of lead. Somebody's always shooting at a pastor, whether it be sin, uh, the devil and his minions shooting at him or be friendly fire from the church themselves. Then the sheep biting their own shepherds. Either way, the shepherd's always got lead coming at his head. So the shepherd has to plead the blood of Jesus for his own life and the life of his family. The elder has to endure sleepless nights of laborious prayer. The elder has to bear the weight of the issues of the saints around him and then move that weight from his shoulders unto the, to the feet of Jesus' cross. He has to resist loneliness in pastoral ministry. He has to fight for joy in the midst of darkness because there's wolves nipping at all of y'all's feet trying to get you to believe some baloney. I have to think about that all the time. Elders are always thinking about who's nipping at the heels of their sheep. What's influencing them that I don't know about until it's too late? An elder has to be ready to mount up at the sight of any threat, both foreign and domestic, for the health of their saints. To faithfully and tirelessly proclaim the gospel of Jesus as articulated at the beginning of this sermon. The crucified yet resurrected Lord for the forgiveness of sins by grace through faith in the Son of God. An elder has to be unbegrudgingly lead the saints under his care unto spiritual maturity and proximity to Jesus. Y'all, this is the qualifications and the roles of an elder. To God be the glory alone. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy in allowing us the opportunity of hearing multiple messages on what it is that their pastors are, what it is that they do, and why it is that they do it.
would they remember that we do nothing for selfish motive nor selfish ambition, that we serve only to be a blessing unto people to the glory of Christ Jesus. Father, would you give your shepherds, the shepherds of this place, the strength and resolve to lead well, to say no to good opportunities that are not the best opportunities for their people. Give us the discernment to utilize any and all resources to the growth of the body. I pray that Jesus be glorified as a result of the leading, teaching, and preaching of this ministry. And I pray that ministries around Fort Worth will grow in their grace of Jesus so that revival would start in the east side and spread to the west, the north, and the south. And that slowly but surely Fort Worth, DFW, and Texas has lit a blaze, not because of financial stimulus packages and child tax care credits, but because the gospel has ignited the souls of people to give and to love, not out of their abundance, but out of their poverty. That we would see the gospel spread forth because people are no longer idolizing their time their talents, and their treasures, but that you, King Jesus, are transforming the heart of people. Lord, we're a lampstand that is lit. Would it light, would it be lit for generations to come? Lord, a selfish prayer is that when everybody in this room is dead and gone, Pillar Church is still proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we would take stock of the letters to the churches in Asia Minor. And that we would not turn to the left or the right of the gospel proclaimed to us. That there is life in Jesus alone. That he is Lord and there is no other. And we will abide and submit to him whether we like it or not. Lord, you are utterly worthy of our praise. And we give you all the glory. Thank you for, 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 thank you for this local body. Set us ablaze for the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.